Welcome everyone, my name is Ryan, I'm the pastor here at City Beautiful. Not only are we in the season of Advent, um, but we've also been in this season called Form. We're talking about taking the shape of Jesus. What does it really mean to be transformed into the likeness of Christ? And we've been able to examine this in so many ways, not just looking at what it is that we believe, um, but how we believe these things. How do we actually enable our belief, the things that we claim to have faith in, to transform us from the inside out? How do we allow those things to walk us through life? And the more that we're faithful to God, the more we grow to look like Jesus and and fulfill uh, the vocation that God has for each one of you as he's rescuing this world. So um, tonight, uh, the, the title of my sermon is How to Read the Bible and Not Join a Cult. Many of you know that I like to turn a phrase. And so what I want to do uh, this Sunday, um, Janae's going to be speaking next Sunday on hunger. So that will be good. And then I'm, uh, and then I'm on the 11th. I'm going to do two sermons specifically about Scripture and its role in helping us to be formed in the likeness of Christ. Um, so why am I passionate about the Bible? Aside from the obvious thing that I literally get paid to study it. Um, you know, when we were doing our spiritual gifts series, we talked about kind of the Old Testament models of what God's community looks like in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, we had the prophet and the priest and the king. We talked about what that looked like in the Old Testament, kind of the parallels when we look at the fivefold ministry in the New. Um, and, and, you know, for the prophet, it's, it's the real-time voice of God in the moment for the people. A lot of times the prophet was kind of on the outside of the wall speaking in. Uh, For the priest, it was the scripture. That was kind of their greatest tool and their greatest contribution. In the New Testament language, we see that in the teacher and to some extent the pastor. The one who kind of opens up the scriptures and is able to lead God's people through that. And then, of course, the king um, is the one who kind of creates the safe place for everyone to thrive. Maybe we would see that something in like the apostolic work or the pastoral work. Um, And so for me, I, I really consider this part of my priestly vocation. Um, to to see the Bible as the opportunity to encounter the real and living God today. And that's really my hope for all of us um, this Sunday and in two Sundays as we're examining Scripture, really trying hard not to join any cults, um, that it leads us into a beautiful, dynamic encounter with God. And I think um, so many of us have been sold short of what Scripture is intended to be in the Christian life. Um, you, even a couple years ago, I was doing a Bible study on studying the Bible, and there was a woman who said she'd been a Christian for 25 years, and she'd never read the Old Testament. And I just found that so tragic, because she said, well, I don't understand it. It seems intimidating. It doesn't really seem to have much to do with it, and I would just rather stick in the New Testament where things just feel nicer. God seems a lot better. And I just think that that's so tragic if we end up in those kind of situations, Um, So I want to challenge tonight the lenses through which we approach or sometimes even avoid Scripture in order to really give it its life back. You know, sometimes we can cherish something and hold on to it so tightly that we we even choke the life out of it. Have you ever had that kind of situation where there's something you're told it's really, really important and you better not abuse it? And so you do everything you can to cherish it, but you hold on to it so tightly that you end up diminishing it and making it small and and, and there's no real gift for it. And so I want us to learn how to open up our hands more with Scripture tonight, to put it in its proper place in how God uh, has granted it to us as part of this beautiful ecology of how we hear from Him, Um, and then in doing so for it to gain its life back and to really begin to lead us into these encounters with God as He truly is. Um, So that's what we're going to be looking at tonight. So just pray with me, please. Heavenly Father, uh, we testify that you're here and you're with us, Lord. In this Advent season, we particularly focus in on that truth, Emmanuel, God with us. Lord, that you have fulfilled and are fulfilling your promise to not only to be with us, but to rescue us and redeem us. And so, Lord, we come to you this evening with everything that we've been told about the Scriptures all of the good and all of the bad, all of the confusing and all of the simple, everything that we've been offered, Lord, especially in places of fear or apprehension, and we lay those things at your feet because it's worth knowing, Lord. It's worth us doing the work to encounter you in some new and surprising ways. So, Heavenly Father, may the words of my lips and the meditations of all of our hearts be ever-pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. 
So uh, throughout this series, there's been one kind of concept that I've been coming back to time and again when I'm thinking about this idea of us being transformed in the likeness of Christ. Transformation happens when we are immersed in God's story. Transformation happens when you and I are immersed or when we're saturated in God's story. One of my favorite theologians, Stanley Hauerwas, once said that a pastor's job is to tell the story of God over and over and over again until it interprets our lives. And I love that kind of flip because a lot of times we think we're to come to Scripture and we're supposed to interpret it. But what if it's actually the other way around, that we tell God's story to one another in a whole panoply of ways, and that story begins to interpret who we are. It begins to show us what God is really like. It begins to tell us what we've been really created to be and what we've really been created to do. And perhaps most importantly, it tells us the story and God's plan of how he's going to set everything right. So we're talking about scripture and how it forms us. There's so much to maneuver through there, but I found these two truths really helpful. So I want to talk about these two truths. I want to talk about what the Bible is, and I want to talk about why we have it and its central purpose. So here's my two truths for you. The first one's a two-parter. Number one, life is hard and the Bible is complicated. Can I get an amen? Can I get some testimony in the house? Life is hard and the Bible's complicated. The sooner that you and I admit that, the much easier it's going to be for us. You see, there's, there's two kinds of suffering in the world. There's the suffering that we infer from being faithful to God, and then there's the suffering we infer upon ourselves because we're desperately trying to maintain a very small view of the way the world is. And that is doubly true when it comes to Scripture. A couple weeks ago on Facebook, I asked the question, what are your questions about the Bible? And I was amazed about how many people responded and that some people immediately responded with jokes. And we all know jokes are a really great coping mechanism to not have to actually deal with the question. Some of them are just funny. I told somebody that my favorite version of the Bible has only Jeremiah 29, John 3.16, 1 John chapter 4, and uh, Philippians 3. Uh, you'll get that if you go and look at what those Bible passages are. But, you know, one of the ways that we deal with this question, one of your questions about the Bible is to make jokes. Um, other people were asking questions about the content, the theology. What does it mean of sanctification, whatever it might be? Other people were asking questions of accuracy. How do we know that these scriptures are the right ones? How do we know that that's what God intended for us to have? Especially when we look at how the Catholics and the Greeks and the Orthodox all have slight variations on what is considered canonical scripture. Um, but the most powerful answers to me or really questions, were the ones where you could really sense somebody's woundedness. That scripture had been used somewhere in these people's lives, not as a way, <clears throat> excuse me, not as a way to encounter the real and living God, not as a way to discover his plan for the world, but as a weapon. You know, we read that the, the, the word is like a sword, but we think that that sword is to be used against other people. And, and I think maybe many of us in this room even have experienced that before. Where scripture has been used against us <coughs> to cut us down, to make us small, um, to, 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 to remove us from God and from community. <coughs> Excuse me. And I think how we approach scripture says as much about ourselves, as it does about the way that we perceive the world. And those are things that we've largely inherited from, uh, you know, broken and unfulfilled systems. But how we approach the scripture says as much about who we are. And so it's no, long, it's no wonder that this is such a contentious issue. And it's at the root of so much of the brokenness and the schism within the church. I've said before, there are two main expressions of Islam. There are about three variations of Judaism, and there are 41,000 denominations of Christianity. And so much of that is because of how we come to the Bible. But the Bible is complicated. It's complex. It's dynamic. It seems to contradict itself in places. There seems like there's too much information in some places and not enough information in other places. But I think that the complexity of the scripture shows us that truth, capital T, real truth, is just a little bit beyond our grasp, just a little bit beyond our intellectual comprehension. And so I think what scripture offers us is a challenge to live in that kind of tension, to begin to wrestle and to dig in and to ask the right questions that, that lead us into this encounter with God. 
So the first truth, life is hard and the Bible is complicated. The second, you don't have to understand it in order to experience it. You don't have to understand it. What we're going to be talking about in a little bit is that so much of Scripture is written in the aftermath of the event of God. And sometimes we feel like, I have to intellectually understand this. We've, when we've been sold the lie that our Bible is something like, you know, the... Um, like a history book or something that you received in high school, and you have to go home and you have to study it, and you have to memorize it, and then you pass the test. But if you don't read that book, you're not going to pass the test. That is not Scripture's intent, friends. So much of it is just giving language to encounters with God. And it's, it's these words that we've even talked about here recently, like they kind of, they fall short, or they're more, they're, they're like signposts that point to something that's a little bit beyond where we're at. And so much of the, of the language of Scripture is intended to help you process your experiences with God, but also to give you a little bit of a push into the next place, into understanding a little bit more what's possible when we're faithful to God and He's faithful to us. And so Scripture then becomes kind of this dynamic challenge to us to discover what God is really like. One of the questions was about, uh, you know, what's, how do we find the balance between theology and relationship? And I think a lot of times theology is another one of those things that's been kind of cut out and separated as part of the bad systems. But the word theology really just means the study of God. Theology, in its essence, is saying, what is God like? What is he like? And we can put that question at the very heart of Scripture, that for thousands of years, mankind has wrestled with that question, what is God really like? And as we try to explain our experiences, we kind of hand them off to the next generation to give them a little bit of a one-up in their discovery of what God is like and in turn who they're called to be. And so our end goal whenever we're coming to Scripture isn't just to photocopy the experiences that we see. It isn't just to become spiritual parrots that just quote all of the language that we find in Scripture. But it's actually for us to have the same kind of encounter with the source as those that have come before us. So those are kind of my two truths that, have, that I have found really helpful when I'm digging into Scripture. So let's talk about what exactly is the Bible. Um, beyond being you know, a collection of books, a library, it's, there's poetry and there's history and there's um, exposition and there's prophecy and there's apocalypse, all these different genres. What is it really? And so what I want you to do is I want you to turn to your neighbor and I want you to try to sum up this, the, the main point of Scripture. What is this book about? So go ahead and take a minute and a half, turn to the person next to you, say, what is the Bible? Okay, stop. Stop. I said one sentence, guys. Come on. You, you can only use, I think it's a rule that you can only use three commas per sentence. I think I learned that in, in English class in high school. It's hard. It's really hard to take the entire story of Scripture and to boil it down into just one sentence. Um, but this is something that I've come to, and, and, and I hope that you came to something similar because obviously it's the right question, it's the right answer. I've got the microphone. The Bible, <laughs> just kidding. The Bible is the progressive revelation of God and his story. The Bible is the progressive revelation of God and his story. Now what do I mean by progressive? I mean that it's this ongoing collective understanding of what God is really like. You know, we begin in the very first book in the very first verse in the very first chapter and it says this word Elohim and Elohim is just a word that means God it's like our English word God it doesn't carry with it a lot of characteristics there's not a lot of personality attached to it it just kind of is Elohim almost becomes this container by which through experience we're able to put some defining characteristics 
But as we move through the story, we find, in the, especially in the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, we begin to collect these names for God as people begin to have greater experiences of what he's really like. They're, we call them the 72 names of God in the Hebrew scriptures. Maybe some year we'll take like two years and we'll do just all the names of God. I don't know. But then we come into the New Testament, we encounter Christ, we see the foundation of the church, and we see the admonition of the Holy Spirit. And then we come towards the very end in 1 John chapter uh, 4, and we find this beautiful phrase, God is love. So we moved from Elohim, which is a very general word, and the final conclusion of the Bible, the divine punchline, is God is love. And there's this 2,000-year-old story in the middle. And so God is the reality in which all of the other stuff is suspended in. Even one of the, the, the bad lenses that we've been granted in the Western world is that we think God operates a lot like the Greco-Roman gods of yours, uh, Zeus and Thor and all of these, where it's mostly a man's story and we're walking down this journey called life, but every once in a while, a god is going to intervene. And maybe they'll do something good or maybe they'll do something bad, but they'll kind of interact with us and then they'll go back up onto Mount Olympus. And a lot of times we read the scripture like that. We say it's essentially the story of man. Man's just going along, doing his thing. And every once in a while, Elohim or Yahweh or whatever you want to call him shows up and does something. But the deeper vein of the Jewish scriptures is this idea that, no, 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 contrary to all of these other ideas of what God or the gods are like, this God is with us right in the middle of it. I love in that song that we just sang that says, there's never been a day where you haven't been by my side. Now, did I always recognize that? Did mankind always know that God was with them? That's another conversation altogether. But the Hebrew God that we encounter in the Hebrew scriptures is defined by his withness, that he is with his people and revealing himself to them. So the human vantage point in scripture is mankind waking up to the reality of God and what he's actually like. I love in the story of Jacob, he falls asleep and he has that dream of this ladder that goes up into heaven and the angels are coming up and down. He sees God in his throne and he wakes up and he goes, surely God is in this place and I, I was not aware. See, we're all slowly waking up to the reality of God. And it's true of us personally as much as it is for mankind historically. And so it's helpful for me to think of, as I said before, that the scriptures are the aftermath of the encounter with God. It's like God is this meteor that impacts the earth, and there's this gigantic crater, and all of us gather around and say, what just happened? And that's really how I think a lot of scripture operates. You know, we use these phrases, divinely inspired or God-breathed. And there's a lot of debate about what we're talking about when we're using those passages. And it comes from 2 Timothy chapter 3. Paul is writing um, to a dear friend of his, a young pastor in a new church. And he's just giving him encouragement of, this is how I want you to frame the story for your people so that it interprets them and they're able to be the kind of people that God is crafting them to be. And he says this, But as for you, continue in what you've learned and become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from intimacy you've known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, there we could ask the question, did Paul himself know that the words he was writing in that moment would become part of Scripture? And that's a whole other conversation that we're not going to have. But when we say God-breathed, when we say divinely inspired, what are we talking about? We're talking about the same kind of thing, only greater, when you and I talk about being inspired. We've had some sort of an encounter, and it's transformed the way that we see everything. And and we can't be the same person that we were beforehand. And so scripture being divinely inspired is about trying to, to give human language that in the end is really just a signpost to the far greater experience of what God is really like. And so when you and I use Phrases like divinely inspired or God-breathed or whatever it is, it shouldn't narrow and tame our understanding of Scripture in order to make it more uh, manageable. Because then we're just guilty of making the golden calf all over again, of diminishing who God is in order to to kind of perpetuate that our worldview is the right one. But God-breathed, divinely inspired, should 
push us into this mysterious truth that expands what Scripture really is, and it illuminates Christ at the center of it. And so revelation ultimately comes through an ecosystem of word, personal experience, community, and creation. That is solid gold. Y'all should be writing this down, okay? Revelation ultimately comes from this dynamic ecosystem that God has created for his people, of word, his holy scriptures, of the personal experiences that you and I have with him and his Holy Spirit, of community, not just here in this room, not just in where we gather during the week, but also our community worldwide of fellow believers and our community historically as we're able to look back at the mothers and the fathers and the brothers and sisters who have gone before us and we're able to glean from their wisdom. And then finally, the one that's been such an impact to me this year, uh, creation, that all of creation testifies to the reality of what God is like. And so when we put the Bible in its proper place, it exists within this far larger, beautiful panoply of the way in which God speaks to you and me. And we begin to allow those things to flow and to influence one another, and it paints this bigger picture of what God is really like. So that's kind of what the Bible is, this progressive revelation of God and his story. So what is the Bible's purpose? What does the Bible do? Now I want you to take another minute and a half, I want you to turn to the person next to you, and talk about that. What's the point? Why do we need the Bible? Okay? Discuss. Bible's purpose? What is its role in our lives that says so much about the way that we approach it too? And so the, the Bible is the progressive revelation of God and his story, but the Bible is also a dramatic announcement of God's promises and faithfulness to his creation. The Bible is this dramatic announcement that God is going to do what he said he was going to do in the beginning. We've talked before a little bit about the difference between good advice and good news. You know, over a decade ago, Phil Vischer, who was the, uh, the creator of VeggieTales, had this epiphany about his whole ministry. He said, what I realized that for over 15 years, what I had been doing is teaching children moral lessons and using biblical examples. To say, this is how you're supposed to act in the world, and here's some examples from the Bible just to show you that that's the right way to act. And he said, I had this epiphany that that is not my role as a Christian. Now hear me in this. He said, my role is not to just teach you moral lessons out of the Bible. My role as a Christian is to lead you into living relationship with Jesus. Yeah. And it dramatically shifted his ministry. And then he said this, and I thought this was absolutely nuts in the best way possible. He designed VeggieTales, so the guy's probably already nuts. He said, Biblicalism is the greatest enemy to modern Christianity. Let me say it again. Biblicalism is the greatest enemy to modern Christianity. When we reduce the Bible to just being a book that gives us advice, makes suggestions on how we're supposed to live our lives, we have reduced it. And we see this so often in the way that we preach, in the way that we present our faith to the world, is that we're trying to make them moral people. Because it's, I think it's actually easier, maybe you would disagree with me, I think it's actually easier to change someone's behavior and just to get them to do things the way that you want them to do it. I think it's a lot harder for us as Christians to actually trust that God is on the move and that we can lead people into living relationship with him through love. This is why we have the law and why we have love. You can clap at that, Zori. That's okay. But what are we really offering people when we preach? 
And so we have to move from this idea that the Bible is good advice that's going to help us live healthier, happier lives, and to begin to see it as good news. Evangelion, that's the word in Greek, this pronouncement that everything is different because God has made faithful on his promises. And he did it through Christ Jesus. And he's continuing to do it today. And so we move away from this owner's mentality of Scripture. That it's like the, it's like the manual in, in your car, you know, in your car uh, bonnet. Nathan, what am I trying to say? Hood, thank you. You guys, sorry, you can sympathize. What? Or glove box, wherever you keep it. I don't know, I just throw it in there with the engine. But, you know, some, hasn't failed me yet, I don't know. But if something's wrong with your car, you just go to page 249 and you look up the thing and how the thing connects the other thing and then you get the thing and you turn it and it works. And a lot of times that's our application with the Bible. Well, here's the situation in my life. I need to turn to this page and then I figure out what's going on. And then we're woefully disappointed when things don't change. Maybe we've changed our behavior for a season, but we fall back into old patterns. We still feel loneliness. We still feel disconnect. We still feel dissatisfaction. But we begin to move away from this idea that the Bible is some sort of owner's manual for life. And we begin to see it as an opportunity for the encounter for God. We give it back its rightful place in that beautiful ecosystem. So the Bible is this dramatic announcement, not just to the first hearers, but to us today, that God is making good on his promises. And so what are the right lenses through which we should be approaching it to find those pronouncements of what God is doing? The Bible was not written about you. The Bible was not written about you, but it is for you. To use that analogy again of, of your owner's manual for your car, that was given to you. That's for you to fix your car. But the Bible was not written about you. It was written about people that lived thousands of years ago. But it is for you. It is meant to lead you into a dynamic encounter with God. You know, it's an old adage that we say history is written by the winners, and that's true for everybody except for the people that wrote the Bible. If you read that story time and time again, the Israelites, the Hebrew people, they are the losers. They are the ones that are in exile. They are the ones that are being tramped upon by the empires that are surrounding them, even whether we're talking about Syria or Babylon or Pharaoh or we're talking about uh, Rome in the time of Jesus. History is written by the winners except for Scripture. And so you and I, when we approach the scriptures, if we fall into this illusion that it's about us, do you read yourself into the heroes or the villains? Do you read yourself into the good guys or the bad guys? Do you read yourself into the people that are on God's side? Or do you read yourself into the people that desperately need an encounter with God? You see, we get in trouble when we try to read scripture just from our modern 21st century American middle class standpoint. Because then it's very easy to see ourselves as the hero of each story. That it justifies our worldview. It justifies the way that we're choosing to live our lives. And we don't actually get transformed by it because we just want the affirmation that we're doing just fine. But when we begin to open up the way that we approach Scripture, to be a little bit more open-handed about it, we begin to discover in that context that there's some very frightening conclusions. That maybe I'm Pharaoh. Maybe I'm Potiphar's wife. Maybe I'm not so much David slaying Goliath as I am David having Uriah destroyed so that I can take his wife. Maybe I'm the Pharisee. Maybe I'm the rich young ruler who Jesus asks a little bit too much from me for my comfort. See, when we open ourselves up that the Bible wasn't written about us, but it is written for us, it changes the way that we encounter these different stories. Context is everything. Context is everything when we're studying the scripture. How was this read by the original audience? That matters. You see, in so much ancient literature, that's the purpose, the reason why the story was written that gives it its structure. So, so much of the very beginning, the Torah, the first five letters of the Bible, we think that a lot of that was at least amassed. It was, it was oral stories for a long time, and then it was written down when Israel was in the Babylonian exile, just before, uh, just before the very end of uh, the Old Testament. 
And there's these stories about creation and then Adam and Eve and then Adam and Eve's fall. And then Genesis 3 through 11 are kind of the ripples of the fall that mankind quickly spirals out of control when they don't have that intimacy with God that they had in the garden. And it ends with this story about the Tower of Babel. It says, east of Eden in Shinar, which is modern day Babylon, east of Shinar, that the people came together and said, let us build a tower that pierces the heavens and the earth. And it's through mankind's ignorance and pride that they think that they can build something that'll get them up to God's level. And God says, no, we can't do this. He confuses their language and scatters the people all over the place. Now, in the Babylonian exile, the Israelites are sitting in Babylon. Babel, Babylon, not a coincidence. Scripturally, anytime you come across Babylon, that is just Bible language for you can't get any farther away from where you're supposed to be than here. And so the Israelites are in exile. They can't get any farther away from the promised land. And they're reading this story, and they're, they're literally being put to work by their Babylonian captors to build, to build a tower that we have evidence of. It was called Edomenonanki in Babylonian, and it means the temple of the foundation of heaven and earth. So imagine yourself being an Israelite reading that story. You're in exile, the Tower of Babel. Mankind's pride and arrogance and thinking that they could do things without God leads to their fall, that they're so far away from Eden, so far away from God's intentions. And then you look, and oh my goodness, you're doing the very same thing. See, if we didn't have contexts like that, these stories sit there two-dimensional and unaffected. And I think this is so important when we're talking about how we approach Scripture, especially when we're looking at the stories from Genesis. And I'm probably going to get myself in trouble here, but that's fine. You come talk to me afterwards in the library. Did this really happen? And what is this story trying to tell me are two very different conversations, okay? Did this actually happen? And what am I supposed to learn here? What is the writer trying to tell me? What is God trying to do within me? Those are two different conversations. And when we conflate those things, we don't get anywhere. You can present all the evidence in the world for something having really happened or not really happened. And yet, if you don't ask that second question, it doesn't matter. And it leads us as human beings to do very silly things. We're, we're trying to, believe, to prove that the ark is real, so we spend $10 million building a replica in the middle of Kentucky when all of that money literally would have bought a house and a home for every homeless person in the state because we think that's how people are going to encounter God. And it's a, those are important questions. Did this really happen is a very important and valuable question. But it's not the same thing as what is this trying to tell me about what God is like? What is this story trying to tell me about the human condition? What is this telling me about the intimacy that's required with him for me to step into my divine vocation? Several years ago, I was teaching uh, this, this ministry school in, in Nashville, the, the church I was working at. And I was talking about this idea of literal and allegorical when it comes to scripture and just kind of some of the history of these ways of looking at the scriptures. And this girl, her eyes got as wide as dinner plates. And she said, you mean there's people out there that don't take the Bible literally? I said, yeah, there are. Who? <laughs> I said, that's a very difficult question. Uh, I'd say no Christians take the Bible literally, literally, because the Bible tells us that the world is flat and it's held up by pillars. Uh, but you know, there are a lot of Christians that would say that there are other parts of it that are purely allegorical and didn't actually happen. Which parts? You know, she needs a list. I don't know if you've ever looked at the Old Testament, but it's pretty substantial. So I said, okay, well, uh, pretty common would be the creation narratives in Genesis 1 and 2, sometimes Genesis 1 through 11. Some people consider the whole Torah, some people the book of Job, some people the book of Jonah. There's other little bits. So that night I'm sitting at my house and the pastor whom I work for calls me it says, I just got off the phone with one of our Bible study leaders, and she's got someone in her group from your Bible study that says that you just told them the entire Old Testament is one big allegory and none of it really happened. And I was like, no, no, that is not what I said. So I had to go in the next day and, and explain a little bit more of what I was saying, that there's a spectrum between purely literal, in which this is just the way things happen, and there is no meaning to extricate from it, and then purely allegorical, which is this did not happen, and you can kind of take it any way you wish. 
And so that's what I'm saying, that did this happen? That's a valid and good question, and we should be digging into that. But what is this trying to tell me? That's the question that we can't afford to live without when we're looking at Scripture. And here's another lens that I think is so helpful. Our challenge is to see the parts in the light of the whole story. Our challenge is to see the parts in the light of the whole story. That owner's manual mentality when it comes to Scripture can often lead us to believe that its primary purpose is just for my personal salvation. But when we reduce the Bible, we reduce God's story to just about our personal salvation, what do I need to do in order to get into heaven, then we render most of God's story completely superfluous and has no real purpose. Imagine that you're invited to this five-star banquet and, and all of the most successful and fantastic chefs in the entire world have come together and they've put out this banquet for you and what do you do? You just go for the bread rolls. Now man cannot live on bread alone, but you can try but I think for so many of us, this is how we treat Scripture. That we've got this beautiful, incredible, exotic banquet laid out in front of us. The whole thing, five-course meal. And we just pick away at the bread rolls because we think it's just about us. It's just about our personal salvation. Maybe another analogy is like going to Disney and just riding the monorail. Hey, did you go to Disney today? Technically, you know, but you missed it. You missed all the best parts. You missed the teacups and you missed, you know, the, the crocodile and Peter Pan. And I don't even know what else is there right now, but you've missed it. Is it enough? Maybe. But why would you sell yourself short? So our challenge is to see the parts in the light of the whole story. And what is that story? It's a story of creation that God creates a good world and puts people in it and calls it very good. It's a story about the fall, how people began to fall short of what God had called them to be in the world as his, as his image bearers. And the echoes, the repercussions of that fall and how we continue to, to find ourselves more and more separated from God. It's about God's plans of re redemption and rescue as he raises up for himself a people who are going to be a royal priesthood. That their job is to reach out to all other human beings and to draw them back into God's embrace. And then it's a story about God anointing one specific man to be the representative of that whole group of people. Yes, to die for the sins of the world, but not just that, but to inaugurate God's kingdom. You know, the Old Testament, the question that's asked over and over again, we even heard it in the prophetic pronouncement tonight of Isaiah to say, what will the world look like when God is in charge again? What is all of this going to be like when God is made king and he puts things back the way that he intended for it to be? And that's the conclusion of the story. Reunion with God, togetherness with him, God on his throne in the person of Christ and all of us living into our full identities as his sons and his daughters. I was very blessed in the way that I grew up um, to, to step into these liturgical calendars. And so maybe some of you experienced this too. Perhaps you went to churches where every Sunday there are four readings, four passages from Scripture. An Old Testament reading, a New Testament reading, a gospel, um, and a psalm. And you can pick any Sunday at any point in history, and I can tell you what the Anglican Church is going to be teaching on that day. And in some regards, it seems like it doesn't really pay attention to what's going on in our current climate. I think that's really valid. But one of the beautiful ways of, of, of seeing Scripture in that light, where we're looking at all of these different parts of the story every year, and it's very concerted, each year has its own gospel that you're really focusing in, is that you very naturally begin to make the connections between what's happening in these four different readings. And you begin to see God's bigger story take shape. You know, the, the chapter titles and the verse numbers in your Bibles aren't, were never really there. Did you know that? Maybe that's a bit of a surprise to you. Paul didn't write and go, and chapter three. No, Paul just wrote a letter. And there, there's a beauty to chapter and verses in the Bible because it helps us find our place. But it can be so limiting if we think that the conversation stops there. Can you imagine if I invited all of you in tonight and said, hey, everybody, we're going to come together and we're going to listen to the middle 10 minutes of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony together. What do you think? I guess. I mean, that sounds okay. But if we're looking at this part in the light of the whole, but we want to take in the entire symphony, we want to witness the whole orchestra, that's what it's all about. 
Even in my daily prayer practices today, I have these three very short scriptural readings that I meditate on and just invite the Lord to bind them together into something a little bit more than what I presented on the page. And so how do we let scripture form us to be more Christ-like? And I think this is the best lens that you and I can have for scripture. Jesus is the lens through which we read the whole story. Jesus is the lens through which we read the whole story. Now, this is very difficult because how do we discover Jesus? We have to go into the scripture. So how can he be the lens and also the, the, the subject? But even the scriptures say that he's the alpha and the omega, the aleph and the tav, the beginning and the end. And so there's this cycle of knowing the more that we discover Jesus in scripture, the more we encounter him, the more we encounter him, the more he becomes the lens by which we read the rest of the story. That sounds very confusing, but have you ever been in love? That you gaze upon your beloved but your beloved also becomes the lens through which you see everything else. You see, love is both objective and subjective. And so when our goal is to fall more in love with Christ, not only do we gaze at him and the words on the page, but he also becomes the way by which we look at the story and one another and ourselves and the world. So it's that cycle of knowing. And this is even testified to in the scriptures themselves the writer of Hebrews says this right at the very beginning of her book, and yes, it's probably a her scandal. <laughs> in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things. And this is the key phrase. And through him, he also made the universe right here. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Do you want to know what God looks like? That foundational question of scripture. Look at Jesus. God looks like Jesus. God has always looked like Jesus. We just didn't always know that. That he is the exact representation of God's character. And so the Old Testament, the law, and the prophets, they served their purpose, but they were the partial revelation of God. But Jesus is the full revelation. The law and the prophets were these signposts into the mist, intending to keep the story moving forward until God's appointed time when he would reveal what he really looks like, and that was a dead rabbi hanging on a tree for the forgiveness of sins, for the reconciliation of the world. It is the best demonstration the world has had and will ever have of what God really, really looks like. You see, the Bible cannot be a stand-in for relationship with Jesus. It's not Father, Son, and Holy Scriptures. But that was never its intention. You have to remember that Saul, before he has this dynamic encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, persecuted Christians because that's what his Bible told him to do. He read the scripture, he saw God's disdain for heretics and those who were unfaithful to the Torah, and he went out and slaughtered them, because that's what his Bible told him. And then he met Jesus for himself, and everything changed in Philippians 3. He kind of says, you want my credentials? I, I'm of the right people, the right tribe, I went to the right school, I was the Pharisee of Pharisees. We think he was probably ascending to be high priest himself, and yet I consider it all garbage. Consider it all garbage for the sake of knowing Christ Jesus. And it dramatically changed the way that Paul read his scriptures. I'd be willing to bet it actually gave him a deeper love and appreciation for the story itself. So Jesus is not only the beginning and the end, but he is the center of the story. Why do you think we use terms and years for B.C. and A.D.? A.D. means Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord. And so I want to give you one powerful example of how Jesus stands at the center of the story and looks back to give us some sort of context to what was happening in the past. Turn with me, please, to Luke chapter 4. So Jesus, in, in, in Luke's gospel, Jesus has just come through um, the, the, the wilderness, the desert. He's been tested, and now he's beginning his earthly ministry. And this is his very first encounter um, with ministry. So Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him, okay? First off, everybody loved this guy. He's really good at what he does. He went to Nazareth, 
where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of our Lord's favor. Now what is so interesting about this passage that Jesus reads is from Isaiah chapter 61. And he goes through this list of what the Spirit of the Lord is going to do and what this good news is. And the very next line in Isaiah 61 verse 2 should say, And the day of vengeance of our Lord. Because when Israel read their Bible... Part of the God's promise is that he was going to wipe out the Gentiles and he was going to reestablish Israel and he was going to beat up the bad guys and Israel was going to come to power again. And Jesus oh so subtly forgets to mention that line and then jumps back to Isaiah 58 for the very last line to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And so maybe that original audience like this one is just sitting there staring blankly not knowing what he's up to. So Jesus rolls up the scroll. He gave it back to the attendant and he sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So they begin to ask questions. Is this Joseph's son? Don't we know this guy? And then Jesus proceeds not only just to give them this conclusion, this has been fulfilled in your day, he goes on and he tells them two stories. He says essentially, you can go and read this in Luke 4 later, he says, of all of the widows in Israel during the time of Elijah that God could have worked through, he decided to work through a lady from Sidon, which is north of Israel. She's not a Jew. And of all of the lepers that God could have healed, he chose to heal Naaman, a Syrian. Again, not a Jew. And so Jesus has read this prophetic pronouncement of what God is going to do from Isaiah, conveniently leaves out the line of day of vengeance of our Lord against the Gentiles, and then tells his audience two stories of God choosing to work in the lives of Gentiles because they don't get to capitalize on Yahweh. So you can imagine, of course, everybody just stands up absolutely amazed and says, Jesus, thank you for expounding on this scripture. You've illuminated to me. Oh, my goodness, I was so wrong. Let's have a party. And it goes on in verse 28. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. This is his first sermon ever. And they're going to throw him off a cliff. I'm not doing my job right, apparently. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Why did they want to throw him off the cliff? Because he was saying the thing that you think God was going to do, God is not going to do anymore. He's going to do something better. He's going to do something more amazing. This scripture has come fulfilled in me as God's anointed one because I am the stand-in for Israel. And I am going to draw all people, Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave and free, into the presence of God and bring them into right union with him. And it almost got him killed. Jesus came to fulfill God's promise of rescue and redemption. In this Advent season, we say, Emmanuel, I'm with you always. So Jesus is the lens through which we look at the story. And that doesn't always make it easier for us. But as Christians, we cannot go back into the Old Testament. We cannot go forward into the New Testament without bringing Jesus with us. Because he's the key to the whole thing. This is why it's so important that you and I saturate ourselves in Jesus. And I mean that by looking at scripture and asking the questions as Isaiah did, as all of these other prophets did, how is God going to do what he's promised? But I also mean saturating ourselves in Jesus today. How is God working in me and through me even now to transform me into his likeness? And so in conclusion, how do we approach scripture expecting revelation that leads to transformation? How do we come to the scriptures no longer afraid that we're not going to get it right or intimidated, no longer just looking for the little snippets that help us get through the day? Well, how do we come to scripture in order to be saturated in God's story 
expecting something will be revealed of his nature that's going to change us. I just have three little admonitions for you for this week uh, before we step into worship. Number one, carefully and often. We should all be reading scripture carefully and often. We cannot afford to walk around with scripture hanging around our neck like a chain, like a burden, like a terror. We have to treat it as the precious gift that it is. And so I would encourage you this week, sit down, just pick one of the Gospels and read it from beginning to end. Don't worry about stopping and analyzing or going to a concordance. Just read it. Allow the story to wash over you. Maybe it's time for some of you to pick up and do some sort of a devotional. I know it's the most unsexy thing in the world to sit down in the morning with your cup of coffee and turn in the pages of the thing that you got. But if you reduce it to just homework, then yes, you'll never get anything out of it. But if you come to scripture expectant first thing in the morning, see what happens. Here's another one. Change your translation. Change your translation. Don't let yourself become so accustomed to the words and the phrases that it actually loses meaning. But begin to explore other ways that people have encountered um, God's story and, and translated into some really surprising ways. So carefully and often, number one. In two, community. Read the Bible in community. Talk about it. Share with one another. Dig in together. And I don't mean just the people in this room. I, as I said before, we stand on the shoulders of giants. We have these mothers and fathers that have gone before us for thousands of years that have wrestled with these very same scriptures, and I think they might possibly have something to teach us. But you don't have to live under the illusion that you need to do this alone, that you need to open up the Bible and just decide what it means. That's too much pressure. Because you've been given a family. You've been given a heritage. We stand in a moment in history where more information is available to us than anyone ever before. Take advantage of that. And finally, learn to read scripture from the heart and from the mind. What do I mean by reading scripture from the heart? Read it with that goal of affection, that it stirs up with affection within you for God and his story. Yet also read it from the mind, seeking to understand, getting into the nitty gritty, looking into every nook and cranny and seeing what you can discover about God. When we love somebody, even the most mundane details of their day means something to us. And it should be the same thing with God. Because the heart and the mind will actually complement one another if we let it. But ultimately, it is worth it. It is so worth it for us to be saturated in scripture and we let it be part of this larger ecosystem of how God speaks to us and transforms us. So let's stand and let's worship this God that is fully revealed in Christ Jesus. And just allow him during this time of worship to wash over you with his spirit, to bring some refreshing, to bring some clarity. And if there's anything that I hope that you get from God's story is that it's bigger than this moment. Whatever you came in with today, whatever your struggles are, I know that it feels like it's the entire world crashing in on you, but God is faithful. God is faithful to make good on his promises and he's on the move. And we get to tap into that larger story tonight as we worship. So let me pray and we'll, and we'll step in. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your holy scriptures that we see time and again mankind waking up to the reality of what you're really like. And not only have you given us scripture, Lord, You've given us Jesus Christ, the radiance of your glory, the exact representation of your character, that we're able to step into a dynamic, real, lived-in relationship with him today, and that changes everything. So Father, as we worship you tonight, we give you permission to move freely in this room. Send your spirit to wash in us and through us, to open us up, to illuminate to us your divine story and the part that each of us have to play in that. We thank you, Lord. We thank you that we have this precious gift to come together with you in communion and goodness. We pray these things in the strong name of Jesus.